Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics, they talk, we listen. My guest today spent nearly 40 years in an organisation he has grown in and now heads. This organisation's UK 2020 revenue was reported to be nearly £4.4 billion and employs over 22,000 people in the UK alone, 284,000 globally. My guest is a champion for and passionate about social mobility, equality and diversity, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because they are igniters of innovation and are an economic necessity, definitely admirable passions. And we will certainly hear a lot more about this in the course of this discussion. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Kevin Ellis is the UK and Middle East Alliance Chairman and Senior Partner of PricewaterhouseCoopers, the largest of the professional services known as the Big Four. Kevin joined PwC in 1984 in the assurance practice and later moved to the business recovery services. He became a partner in 1996 and led the business recovery practice in 2006. As head of advisory, he joined the executive board and in 2012 he became the managing partner for PwC UK. Prior to this, Kevin graduated in industrial economics and qualified as a chartered accountant. Kevin is highly respected by his peers, and that is shown by the fact that he was elected chair in 2016 and re-elected uncontested last year. We're going to find out a lot more about Kevin's leadership, thoughts and insights. His re-election is a clear indication he is doing something right, especially in these precarious times we're living in. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Kevin to Headstock. Happy to have you here today. How are you? Very well, thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, Elaine. That's great. And thank you for joining Heads Talk. Um, a lot to talk about. Uh, and I'm looking forward to you elaborating on some of the topics here today. Naturally, we're going to go and concentrate on PwC and PwC's point of view. So, OK, it's a year on since we had the first lockdown in March 2020. So we've had a period of adjustment and reflection. This is a three part question I'd like you to answer. How has it impacted, one, the business? two, staff morale, health and well-being, and three, you, your leadership and approach and communication approach. First, the business. Yeah, um, well, the business, the first five months was particularly hard. Mm. I mean, when we sent 22,000 people home back in March last year, we didn't know whether they could be productive. We didn't know whether the Wi-Fi would work. And we also didn't really know how working capital management will play out. I mean, would companies in uncertain times hold their money? So we had to take on extra facilities. We took lots of steps effectively to shore ourselves up. And the first five months was particularly hard. But gradually we saw um, clients having to transform, digitize at speed, and they needed support in dealing with the uncertainty that like us, they face too. Um, and by the time we kind of got to the early part of this year, we've seen our business back on a, on a steady footing. And actually as a barometer, we're only as strong as our own clients. I think it bodes well for business activity as we come through this pandemic. All right. And what about staff morale and health and well-being? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, for our staff, um, you know, our average age is 31, about 22,000 people in the UK. Um, and therefore, a lot of them were being effectively had to work in flat shares that they'd only chosen to sleep in. <laughs> and that caused all kinds of challenges. Um, and then, of course, we had homeschooling as well at different stages and different lockdowns. Um, and then obviously a lot of people lost friends and family to the pandemic and had to cope with elderly parents. So there were a lot of other mental health challenges and, and life challenges going on. We spotted that quite early. We, we did a, a resilience webcast with a psychiatrist from a company called Cognacity in the first week of the lockdown. And 14,000 of our 22,000 people joined it live. Mm. And that very quickly told us that people needed and wanted support. So mm. during the pandemic, we've bought the Headspace app for all our people. Um, we've put in place helplines uh, to support people with particular mental health challenges. And since July, we've kept all 20 offices open in response to requests from our staff that they wanted the alternate, they wanted from a personal well-being point of view to have access to offices at times. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting, we, we regularly pulse survey our staff in terms of their engagement and the engagement scores have been at an all-time high through the pandemic versus mm -hmm. before the pandemic. We've always had high engagement scores, partly because of the age of our people and the fact that we look after them. But actually during the pandemic, it's been kind of off the scale. And you know, it's been the high, it's been in the 90% of people feeling looked after through COVID. So I think what we've done has kind of come back round in a full circle, both in terms of engagement with our people, but also their productivity and how they have coped and worked with us and our clients mm -hmm. during a particularly difficult time. And the, the the final part of this, you, how has it impacted you? Yeah, I mean, at a personal level, you know, I've got four teenage children. Uh, they found it really hard. Uh, and I think for most other parents, I think, you know, the under 25s have probably suffered the most, um, both in terms of having their lives put on hold. Mm -hmm. um, and that has impact on everyone's families and their own well-being. Um, I think uh, the other thing is that I think from a leadership point of view, you have to learn very quickly that when people were having to work remotely in unusual circumstances, there was a really important need to be communicated with. So we were doing very regular live live streams around both topics of resilience, as I mentioned, but also topics like Brexit, like the US elections, um, like um, uh, carbon neutral, all those issues. Mm -hmm. And I was regularly getting notes from people saying it wasn't really the content or the topic. But when you haven't had human contact for two months because you're living and working remotely, it's really important to feel part of something. Mm -hmm. I think it's a natural human need. So I think for me as a leader, it's really important both to communicate that everyone's jobs were safe, that we're not going to furlough anyone mm -hmm. in the first week, because there was so much uncertainty and fear out there. I think it was important to kind of categorise what they didn't have to worry about. And then throughout the pandemic, I have regularly spoken to staff, spoken to partners and also spoken to the media so I can speak to our staff's family and friends about what our plans are, when our offices are open, whether we expect people to go in, it's voluntary. All of those messages, I think you've got to kind of constantly repeat and clearly put out there in uncertain times, otherwise fear takes over. And that isn't actually good for the business as well as the personal circumstances of all our people. Mm -hmm, indeed. Um, I, I mentioned in the introduction that, among other things, you're a staunch and proponent of social mobility in business. 
PwC has recently won the um, Social Mobility Awards. Congratulations on that. And I assume the apprenticeship program that you currently have at PwC is part of this whole drive. Um, apprenticeship is, is an interesting topic because here in the continent where I'm based, um, I'm based in Switzerland, it's very much respected and is on par with going down the university route. However, it, it has a bit of a, a negative press in the UK. Um, I wonder if that's changed. What is your personal view on this? And what is PwC's corporate strategy on apprenticeships? Yeah, look, apprenticeships, I think, is a kind of very positive word historically in this country and across Europe. I think sometimes it gets negative press because it gets linked to kind of being how the apprenticeship levy, levy works in the UK, which was a specific uh, government program. So I think sometimes you've got to distinguish the two. Um, look, as a business, we've been, as you rightly say, we're very proud to have been the social mobility employer for the last two years in the UK. Um, and again, we do focus on the background of the people we take on. Uh, diversity and inclusion is critical for us as a business. Mm -hmm. It's the right thing to do societally, but also it's the right thing to do commercially. You know, we sell work and advise a vast array of clients and people only buy from people that look like them or share their values. And therefore, if you aren't a diverse and inclusive player in that space, you will not be able to cover the whole market. So it's a commercial need as well as a societal one. In terms of apprenticeships, um, where we've found it really interesting is, as a business, we are going to need more technology skills in the future. Mm -hmm. If we just recruited those technology skills in the marketplace, it would cause a huge change in the wrong way in terms of our uh, diversity levels. Because for a, for a start, if you recruit in the market, the number of uh, females with technology skills is probably 10% to 12% based on background. Um, so therefore, what we did was we used the apprenticeship degree that we sponsored and paid for. So we paid for our people to do an apprenticeship degree. And we directly focused on both ensuring that at least 30% who took that degree up were mm -hmm. female. So we were kind of effectively biasing the sample to ensure we had the diverse workforce mm -hmm. and we biased it towards social mobility challenge people so they had the opportunity to come into our workforce so by doing that we kind of used effectively the apprenticeship role into as an entry route to our firm as being as diverse as possible so apprenticeships i think are really important in terms of getting the right skills at the end of the day we're a skills and learning business mm -hmm. and apprenticeships are the right way of attracting people at the same time if you get the right role models say in the tech space, who are both female or from more challenging backgrounds, then they will bring others with them behind them because role models encourage others to follow them in their journey. Mm, indeed, indeed. Um, this next one is a, it's a bit of an odd question. Um, in, a, in a lot of the conversations I have had um, with leaders, C-suites on, on Heads Talks, they use the word uncertainty with such frequency that it deserves its own question now. So um, I'm asking here, PwC, like like the other big four corporations, is in the knowledge business. In this COVID period, how easy or hard is it for you to say to staff, I don't know? Yeah, I suppose um, when you're selling professional services and you're kind of brought up as an advisor, it's quite an uncomfortable phrase to say you don't know because effectively people are often buying your knowledge. Um, but again, I think as a leader, you've got to be authentic. And where you don't know, I think people have got to accept that you'll go away and find out for them. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important, has been really important during the last year to constantly communicate because otherwise, if you leave a vacuum, the vacuum can get filled by negativity or concern mm -hmm. that's unfounded. 
So I think as a leader, you've got to tell people when the business is doing well, business is doing well. When their jobs were safe, their jobs are safe. The fact we're not going to use furlough, we're not going to use furlough. The fact that we're going to take on all the people who've been offered jobs on time as planned, however the business is doing. Mm-hmm. All of those are really important things to do. Where at times someone asks me a question about what we're going to do about this, are we going to do vaccinations in the office? Are we going to do testing in the office? I will regularly say, look, we don't know yet, but immediately we know, I'll tell you, or we'll put it on our COVID microsite. Hmm. So I think, it's, I think it's important that if you if you back away and either don't answer or don't engage, you leave a vacuum and that vacuum gets, full, gets filled effectively by uncertainty. So I think in terms of this world we're in at the moment, the pandemic and all the worry and concern, it's really important to have a constant dialogue. If you have a constant dialogue, you won't know the answers to everything. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you were doing this before the pandemic, or has the pandemic made it easier generally for you to say, I don't know? Um, we were doing it before. I've had to, I, what I found during the pandemic because of the uncertainty and fear is to effectively increase the level of communication because the, the if you leave the void, the void gets filled by negative, negative forces. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Um, let's talk about the relationship between the audit and consulting practice. It's been in the news recently with the competitions and market authorities. What is the relationship between the two in PwC and how do you ensure there's no conflict of interest? Yeah, we've got very strict rules that um, effectively governed by the different countries of the world in terms of what, what constitutes conflict of interest. And obviously we obey those rules mm-hmm. and we have a subcommittee of the board that oversees that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, whatever business you're doing, the world has become so complex and businesses themselves become so complex that you do need a multidisciplinary firm to both do audit and do consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, the insights you can get in doing an audit, if you're doing the audit of a financial services business and it's got complex derivative instruments, it's unlikely as an auditor that you will be able to audit effectively those complex derivative instruments. So you will look to someone in your consulting business that advises financial services industry on those complex derivative instruments. And that happens all the time. You know, during the pandemic, if you're doing a going concern opinion, i.e. saying whether a company looks like it can survive uh, with reasonable certainty for the next 12 months um, and, and meet its liabilities as they fall due, um, as an auditor, you'll have a good view on that. But it'd be better to get a second, second opinion from someone from an insolvency background. So we've seen a five-fold increase in the amount of hours that our insolvency and restructuring people have spent supporting our audit business, getting the going concerned opinions correct. Um, Therefore, I think it's really important to do a good audit, your multidisciplinary firm, and to have top talent. You can attract people in, they can learn their skills right across our business, get the best view of business as possible, Mm -hmm. so that whatever, whatever end game they go, whether working for us or working for somebody else, they get the training, they get the insight, they get the support and learning so that they become the best version of themselves. That also helps that social mobility point. You know, every year a business like mine recruits 4,000 people and 4,000 people will leave us. So if you've got a diverse, inclusive workforce from a socially mobile background, that is enhancing the talent across all industry and all professions because people move on from us and they have that opportunity and aspiration from us that helps them get to other jobs as well. Um, we cannot have a conversation like this without introducing digitalization in the debate. Um, please, at a very high level, how will digitalization modify 
or delivery in the consulting and audit businesses, what training or upskilling programs are needed and in place in PwC? I mean, is that outsourced or, is, or are you doing that inside, internally, I should say? Yeah, I mean, look, we have to have it internally because digitization isn't a skill that you can kind of buy in on a one-person basis. All of our people have to be trained in it. Mm-hmm. So we've been training all our people through digital academies in the basic knowledge they need to both advise clients, but also to act, act on their own accounts. For example, you know, you know, a lot of us are working from home. We've all had to up our digital skills to work from home. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of become a, a natural necessity, whatever age and background you have, to have these skills. We are now seeing a huge number of clients effectively demanding more for less digitized in every part of our business. And I think that's only been accelerated by the pandemic. If I look now at where we're winning work, a lot of it is in advising clients on taking on or transforming their business in terms of digital platforms. Um, and with that, they want the culture change that goes with this as well. It's not just about having a new plug-in device for their people. It's about how their people use it and operate in a different cultural way because of that digital platform. So upskilling our people in digital skills is critical in terms of meeting our clients' need, but also in attracting talent. Talent will only go where it's learning. And if you're not giving your talent access to the latest digital capability, they won't join you and they won't stay. All right, okay, that's internal and ongoing. Um, with the next question, um, I'll present it as an either or. Um, please enlighten us to the, the current situation. It's about merger and acquisitions and the ongoing trends uh, and market structure changes, presumably not just because of the pandemic, but structural moves were happening before that. Number one, there is a potential to acquire small strategy houses, niche consultancies, that are struggling to keep afloat. They will enable us to shore up areas of our business going forward or to expand on our service offerings. Or number two, clients are rethinking and assessing their purchasing practices and strategy. And as a result, niche nimble specialist consultancies or startups are making inroads into the marketplace and effectively acquiring some of the big four's clientele. Which one is true? Um, look, we always look to the future to be agile. Inevitably, we will look outside for talent. We will develop some talent inside. We will, we've got the acquisition of the of Booz Allen Consultancy at Strategy End, mm-hmm. um, and we'll build that and build that capability. But also, customers want to buy from us certain skills. So where we can grow those skills, we will do. Where we need to acquire those skills, we'll do it too. Um, a, number, a number of CEOs that I speak to are looking to enhance their businesses through um, making deals and, and we're no different this is a deals-led recovery mm-hmm. um, and if and if it's technology driven and it will be then where you need more technology talent where you need more strategy talent you'll buy it in to meet the needs of your market and we're no different to any of our clients in that regard mm. so are you buying in people or are you buying in um startups that are sort of failing because of the pandemic um, I would say failing because of the pandemic. I think, look, we, where we need people, we'll either buy the people or buy the businesses. And that just won't be me. You know, we operate in 151 countries of the world. Virtually all of my fellow uh, territory senior partners are talking to each other about collaboratively buying capability across border, mm-hmm. as well as buying extra talent or businesses in their own countries. This is a debate that will be taking place right across the globe at the moment mm-hmm. in all industries, but particularly professional services where the client demand is such, we need to meet it to be effective and to be relevant in our marketplaces. Mm-hmm, indeed. Okay, a straightforward question. Uh, Brexit, sorry, we have to talk about that. Um, what is the impact of Brexit on the consultancy business? Has Brexit presented opportunities in the audit practice? 
What are your clients saying to you, Kevin? Um, firstly, I think um, prior to the, the skinny deal being done at Christmas, <laughs> people were very, very worried. They're very worried because no one likes uncertainty. It impacts investment. It impacts decision making. So although the deal that was done with the EU over the Christmas period was, I think, a skinny one, um, there is no doubt it gave a great comfort. We did a CEO survey of uh, 50,000 CEOs around the world uh, in January and February. And it was really interesting how the UK as a destination for investment had moved back into the top four this year. And I think some of that was driven by the vaccine rollout success. Right. But some of it was also driven by the certainty that Brexit provided. So I think there's a, there is a positive from getting that certainty. But at the moment, what you can't tell is you can't tell what's a Brexit effect and what's a COVID effect. Mm. And I think that is still, if you like, slightly in the foggy elements. Uh, and I think we'll really not see the full impact of Brexit and effectively the agility to move around the world to service our clients mm. until effectively the COVID restrictions are lifted and we really see how it works and what's necessary and what can be done remotely. So I suppose it's one of those, I don't know at the moment, because we're waiting to see really, aren't we? If it wasn't for COVID, I think we'd know by now, but yeah. I think COVID does effectively call, cause a blurring of the lines. Yeah, okay. Um, there is a big drive in PwC um, for the diversification of teams. You've talked about it quite a bit throughout this um, episode. What tangible benefits does this bring to an organization such as yours? Um, look, I think uh, with, we're an innovative business. We're always going through change, both, both in reinventing what we sell, how we sell it, and how we're effective for our clients. And um, that innovation increases with diversity and reduces the sameness. So again, it's business necessity in terms of a business like mine. Right. What we find is that we can also be a convener in this space. Right. And therefore, it's really important that we shine a light on what we're doing and we tell people what we're doing. Um, so every year when we do a digital annual report, we publish both our diversity and pay gap rates. And this year we went beyond gender uh, and ethnicity into uh, black. Um, and therefore, we were very clear in not just where we are in the pay gap, but where we are on the flow rates. We measure across all our business at different grades how we're doing, because it's no point if I'm trying to select the best people for the most senior roles. I need a big uh, potential group to choose from, and I want a diverse group to choose from, because otherwise I won't get those role models, nor will I get that innovation thinking. Mm -hmm. So flow rates are really important. So for me, it's about shining a light and holding ourselves responsible for our actions. Um, so we always share that in our digital annual report. We publish it in the newspapers, in press releases. And what's interesting is it's probably the most read part of our report, not just by our people and our clients, but our future employees. So again, if you're in a talent business and you're trying to recruit top talent, if you're not seen to be committed and on a journey, I don't think for a second we've solved it. We've got a long way to go on so many aspects. Mm -hmm. But I think being honest about where we are on that journey and the steps we're taking is really important in terms of bringing top talent to our business and retaining top talent in the future. And also it affects others. People look at what we're doing and they copy it. So it has a wider impact on society. All right, okay, that's good. Um, I'm looking forward to you answering this next question because I'm trying to figure it out myself. Um, there is this, for want of a better phrase, a, a PwC aura, if you like. Um, I see it online, on LinkedIn and through some of your staff, a sense of um, 
comradeship in your organization. And I want to explore this with you. People of all grades are positively talking, working and sharing in your organization. And as an outsider that has worked um, in two of the big four organizations for a number of years, not PwC, I hasten to add, I can see this vividly. Let's talk about company culture. What is your definition and what is PwC's company culture? Um, well, firstly, why is culture important for a business like ours? It's only long-term competitive advantage for any businesses is culture. And it's very much front of mind at the moment because a business like mine, when you've got 22,000 people working remotely and you've got 3,500 people joining you every year, um, are we sure that people joining us feel connected to the firm, are getting the learning opportunities, the network opportunities, but also are they understanding the culture? Because if they don't, the culture will potentially die or certainly um, dilute. So culture is really important in terms of being a long-term competitive advantage. It's really important, particularly in times when we're remote working, to ensure we're watching it. And I think the thing is, it's an inclusive, innovative, progressive culture. We're very clear on our purpose. Our purpose is to um, build trust in society and solve important problems. Uh, that fits for everything we do. Behind that are our values. We're very clear on what our values are and we're purpose-led and they're built on those values. Care, integrity, reimagine the possible, working together. And again, everyone that joins us, we talk about these all the time, but we bring them to life both in terms of the assignments we do, but also the work we do in supporting parts of society and social mobility, but also um, the charitable work we do as well. All of that I think is really important because I think in today's world, when you're holding on and retaining and recruiting top talent, people want to work for a company that not only has a purpose written on the kind of, if you like, written on the lanyard, but it's a purpose they can actually feel, explain and touch themselves. And that is what our culture is. It gives people that purpose and feeling part of something that they can understand what we're doing and why they're doing it. Um, we touched upon this final question at the beginning of this discussion. I'd like your take on this, Kevin, or, or just to round it up. It's about leadership and the responsibility in general. Um, a previous guest on Heads Talk said that leadership is a privilege and it's about service. He emphasised the point service. Do you agree? And would you like to add to this? Yeah, I think, as I say, in the world we're in now, leader isn't about being right. It's about setting the tone, setting the culture. Um, and it's kind of leader as servant in terms of what you do. You're there to support your people, to make them feel part of the whole um, and to deal with their concerns in an uncertain world. Um, for a partnership, it's very different as well, because if you like, you get elected as the leader. You don't get chosen by a chairman in a partnership. You know, it is a secret ballot, hustings, manifestos and the like. So I think uh, you get chosen for leadership qualities. But at the same time, you have a responsibility for the future of the business. Our business has been around for over 170 years. Um, you know, when I go, I'll be forgotten and the next leader will be in place, which is, you know, I think a really important part of the business. Mm -hmm. So my job is, a, is my legacy is to ensure that my future leaders that my partners can choose from are both diverse, talented, and have the knowledge and skills to take the firm forward in a very different way to me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, very different to most leadership challenges in most corporates. Ours is really driven by legacy and the feeling of building something and passing something on stronger than how you received it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the side question about saying sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think that we, we, we often get things wrong. Um, and I think in, a, in, a, in society today, we should, when we get things wrong, hold our hands up and say, we'll learn from that.
And just as an, uh, an additional question, this is the leadership question. Um, would you say you'd be very different if it wasn't an elected process, if it was very different from an elected process? Because election almost gives you sort of a mandate, like validation. People, even though it's a secret ballot, have said, yes, we want you to be the chair. Whereas, you know, if it's for a different means, what would your attitude be? How, how different would you feel about it? I think it's really empowering to have been chosen by your fellow partners to lead. Mm. And in a world that's uncertain, when you've got to make quite big decisions about lots of different things, I think it gives you the confidence to see those decisions through, discuss those decisions and then decide because you've been elected to do it by your fellow partners. They've chosen you. That is a really empowering factor. Mm -hmm. So after this, when you decide I perhaps I want to tie, would you go into politics? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I've still got another three years plus to go. So I think I'll just focus on doing that for now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's just a thought. Let's probably watch out for that. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure and an insightful conversation. Kevin Ellis, many thanks for your time and insights. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, your Thank questions. You. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.